Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It is Monday, October 2nd, 2023. We're already, what, a 15th almost into October. <laughs> and I'm getting in my spooky vibes. Over the weekend, I rewatched The Conjuring, The Nun. Probably going to watch The Conjuring 2. Most of the year, I don't like horror movies, but this time of the year, I just feel it's necessary, especially because over the weekend, it was cool, windy, rainy, dark. I did my runs, did some long ones, and, you know, enjoyed the cool weather, but when I got back inside, I just wanted to have some tea, drink some chocolate milk, maybe have a have a cerveza or two, and just watch, uh, watch those type of movies. So, it's that time of year again. I am here for it. And I guess also, I, I hate his, um, astrology, usually, but I am a Scorpio, so second half of October, you know, really uh, fits in with my life here. So anyways, we're going to talk about a lot of different things today, coming from, or ranging from the government shutdown to the new culture war against Taylor Swift. Hint, the right is doing it. I also want to talk about some interesting insights from one of Sarah Longwell's focus groups brought to you by The Bulwark and where we hear the people talk about Nikki Haley and how they prefer male presidents. I think it's an interesting window into basically the permission structures to just say what you think that Trump brought out, good and bad in a way. Like sometimes I'd rather just know what people think than have it quieted down. But also sometimes I think speech can be dangerous if it's leading towards hate. So anyways, we'll, we'll get into that in a moment. Then I also want to get into some foreign policy stuff if we have time. But first, last, was it late Saturday or early Sunday? Yeah, it was late Saturday because October 1st was the deadline for the whole government shutdown thing. And literally 11th hour type of shit. Kevin McCarthy abruptly changed course. He basically put a big middle finger or maybe the double middle finger up to the bomb throwers and the Freedom Caucus, the Matt Gates types. And he partnered with Democrats, and they stopped a government shutdown. Bam, shabam, it's over. For 45 days, of course. <laughs> it at least buys them time for 45 days. But um, after this happened, basically, from my understanding, Kevin McCarthy just worked with Democrats and made some agreements, which we'll get into in a moment, and they passed the bill and gave a big, big middle finger to the ones that wanted to either oust Kevin McCarthy or force a shutdown. And then the House overwhelmingly approved the temporary extension of federal funding. I mean, it's good the government's not shut down. Last Friday, I talked about why shutdowns are not good. But also at the same time, I mean, an extent, I'm, I'm basically I'm sick of these like three month or I guess a month and a half extensions. Like I would rather just find some sort of long term solution to this, but that would take two serious parties. And right now we only have one. And so anyways, the House overwhelmingly passes this extension, and then the Senate passed the bill late Saturday evening, I guess, putting off a shutdown for at least 45 days, buying parties time to negotiate. And by negotiate, that means Kevin McCarthy secretly trying to make deals with Democrats, Matt Gates threatening the motion to vacate bullshit, and who knows, McCarthy might even be gone by then, so it's a mess, but... Getting to that, the question now is whether McCarthy's ability to work with Democrats and make sure that we don't go into a shutdown will end his, what, nine or ten month tenure as Speaker. 
he is, I mean, he's going against the people that he made the deal with the devil with, right? Uh, he is effectively daring people like Matt Gates, others like um, Andy Biggs of Arizona. He's basically daring them to finally make good on their threats, to get rid of them with a motion to vacate the chair. And was it Friday or Saturday? I think it was Friday I talked about how I think he should call them on their bluff because there's really no one else right now for them to replace him with because Steve Scalise unfortunately has cancer. I hope he gets better, but he was the alternative. I've heard some people say Byron Donald, uh, Florida Congressman, Jim Jordan. There's a lot of fun characters in there. None of them should be speaker, but of course that's where the Republican Party is going right now. But yeah, so I do like what McCarthy said. I don't like McCarthy, but uh, yeah, he said, if somebody wants to remove me because I want to be the adult in the room, go ahead and try. But I think the country is too important. Now, I don't know if I agree with he thinks the country is too important. He's kind of played coy with Trump's election lies and buddy-buddied up with him. He didn't condemn him after January 6th. Like, if McCarthy actually loved the country, there's some things I think he should have done as well. But in this case, I'm impressed because he did decide to compromise with Democrats and work with moderates over shutting down the government. And I'm going to give you guys a hot take right now that might piss off some of my more left-leaning listeners. I think, I think Kevin McCarthy's the best thing we're going to get with, with the Republican House right now. And I know that's a depressing reality, but he literally has been able to work with Democrats. He seems to understand the gravity of the situation, and he does understand that he needs moderate support as well. And at the end of the day, both times it's been kind of at the 11th hour, 11th hour he has made the right decision, which kind of surprises me in a sense, but I will take it. So yeah, I do think Kevin McCarthy is the best we're going to get with a Republican-controlled House right now, which is a depressing reality, but he's not Jim Jordan, he's not Matt Gates. he's not Andy Biggs, he's not Marjorie Taylor Greene, he's not Lauren Boebert. The list can go on and on and on. Now, I am not particularly happy with this stopgap bill that was passed at the 11th hour. Yes, it includes, for example, disaster relief money that both parties wanted, but it does at the same time to a certain extent, look like the bomb throwers in the Freedom Caucus and beyond did get something they wanted. And this was stopping aid to Ukraine. And so the Atlantic writes here, McCarthy refused to add $6 billion in Ukrainian aid that the Biden administration and a bipartisan majority of senators wanted. Now, I should also add that that's an important thing to note here, is that the Senate is much more pro-Ukraine on both sides than the House is. And I... I, I learned during this whole chaos yesterday that apparently the Senate was working on passing its own extension that included the Ukraine money, and Mitch McConnell was working with Chuck Schumer to do this. Like This was a truly bipartisan effort in the Senate to at least get that passed. We can have our debates about whether there should be a bunch of aid sent or not. That's not the scope of this conversation right now. But basically, the Senate was going to do a workaround, <clears throat> 11th hour, McCarthy ends up passing this with Democrats, and now it looks like the House vote um, basically is going to cause the Senate for the time being to accept McCarthy's proposal instead. So $6 billion in Ukraine aid is not going to be going there. So in a sense, you can say the Matt Gaetzes somewhat won, or at least the pressure they put on did force, I guess, both parties in a sense to kowtow to that kind of anti-intervention right wing. And I am not going to lie, to be fair, if I was Matt Gates, who apparently is going to run for governor, 
<laughs> oh dear. That would have to be what in 2026. Uh, this actually would be a good talking point for him is that he's added pressure. He was able to pressure house leaders to not add more aid to Ukraine. Like that is something that is good for him politically. I think it's deplorable and I don't agree with it, but it is something good for him politically. And it should be noted because it's very clear that Matt Gates has ambitions that are not helping the country, by the way. He, helping the country is not an ambition of Matt Gates, but higher office definitely does seem to be there. Now, moving on for just a little bit further, I guess <laughs> this is actually pretty funny. So Democrats were actually caught off guard when McCarthy was willing to work with them and go through this new bill and get it pushed through. The Atlantic notes again, McCarthy's surprising about face set off a wild few hours in the Capitol. Democrats were caught off guard and stalled for time to read the new bill, unsure if Republicans were trying to sneak conservative policy priorities into the legislation without any noticing. Now, my favorite part of all this chaos, because I guess it was just a pretty chaotic day on Capitol Hill, but Representative Jamal Bowman of New York, a pretty progressive guy on the Democratic side, <laughs> I don't know if this was advertent or not, but he caused the evacuation of an entire house building because I guess he pulled the fire alarm right before they were going to do the vote. And Republicans say this was deliberate and it was an effort to delay the proceedings and maybe even criminal. The Atlantic notes, Bowman's chief of staff said the representative in quotes did not realize he would trigger a building alarm as he was rushing to make an urgent vote. <laughs> I don't remember the last time I inadvertently pulled a fire alarm, so that's a fun one. But I mean, I guess I actually wouldn't be totally surprised. Let's just play devil's advocate for the Republican argument for a second. All week, it looks like Republicans are not going to budge. Then literally like hours before the deadline for government shutdown, you find out that they're willing to work with you. Yeah. And, and then they're like, we need to pass this quick. Here's the bill. Maybe he, he is like, okay, we'll pull the fire alarm and that'll at least pause. So, so we have some time for our aides and staff to read this. And I guess the good news is, is that there weren't any hidden conservative priorities in there. It does seem to have just been what they said is just kind of a last minute attempt to not, you know, to at least extend government aid and funds so that we don't shut down. And The Economist has a good piece I was reading this morning, and it talks about how there's a lot of interesting implications in this because more Democrats than Republicans in the House supported the bill. The Economist writes here in quotes, it was also inevitable that Mr. McCarthy would have to rely on Democrats if he wanted to keep the government open. The article continues, Republicans have such a slim majority in the House, 221 to 212, that the party's nihilists in effect have a veto over any Republican-only legislation. And it is a point. It's an unfortunate situation if you want bipartisan democracy, representative democracy to happen. Now, I should note, again, giving McCarthy credit again, was that, you know, McCarthy's been in the House for a while, senior roles in the House for a while, and he's been involved with other previous shutdowns. And I think it's interesting that he chose compromise over closure. There's a lot of different theories behind this. One of them to me is that maybe he wants the party to do well in the 2024 elections. And shutting down the government and doing this Biden investigation impeachment inquiry without any evidence. Basically, it's a fishing expedition to find evidence. I feel like both of these at the same time are making his entire caucus, his entire house look like a shit show. And he maybe understands that if they want to do well in 2024, 
maybe they got to step this up a little bit. There's also the chance that maybe he just understands that a shutdown would not be good. Now, I'm not that optimistic. I'm not that, you know, glass half full about him because I don't think he... I don't think he's a morally great guy. I don't think his moral compass is that big. But then you also have to wonder, like, what is the end goal here? Because I don't know if this is good for him either. Because, yeah, he called them, maybe on their bluff, maybe not. But is he going to be the speaker? Is he going to survive this? Like, he stood up to the far right. He stood up to the people that have been basically trying to control his entire speakership. But it does sound like they're really pissed at him. And I wouldn't be surprised if they go for him. So we'll cover more of this in days to come. But look, he chose compromise and instead decided to piss off the bomb throwers in his party. So for me, that is good news. And the government's not going to shut down for at least 45 more days. So, you know, look, I was wrong. I thought this one seemed different. But the narrative remains true, or at least over recent years, is that we all talk about there's going to be a shutdown and they end up having a deal at the end. So I guess this is a good one for me to be wrong on. I'm glad I was wrong. Okay, so moving on, I want to talk about Sarah Longwell's Focus Group podcast. Sarah Longwell I've talked about before. She is the editor for The Bulwark, which I'm a big fan of. Kind of a center-right, center-left, never-Trump organization. A lot of good writers there. Anyways, she is one of the co-founders and editor, but she also runs a, an organization that runs really good focus groups. Honestly, I don't know how she has time to sleep or relax, but she does it all. And she does, she's done some of the best focus groups out there in terms of mainly trying to understand Trump, two-time Trump supporters, one-time Trump supporters, Obama to Trump supporters, Trump first-time, Biden second-time supporters. She's one of the people that first kind of rang the alarm, sounded the alarm, I guess is how you say it, about how... DeSantis was dropping because people in her focus group were saying he sounds like a career politician, which she said is basically the death sentence for anyone during the MAGA times. Anyways, a lot of really interesting insights from her focus groups, and she put out a new focus group podcast slash YouTube video slash session, and Tim Miller, another Bulwark contributor, Jeb Bush's campaign manager, I believe it was, or strategist, one of the two, and anyways, they basically... Uh, go through what some two-time Trump voters think of some of the candidates that are running against Trump. And Nikki Haley comes up, and I want to play this clip because it's actually some really interesting insights into how a lot of these two-time Trump voters, so basically the Republican base, doesn't think the country is ready for a female president, and they think that she would be weak. They Some of them like her. They think she's smart but they just don't think a woman can be president. They're not ready for that to happen. Now, I, I disagree with the premise, but it tells me a lot about what could be next and why Nikki Haley probably has no chance. Okay, the other thing uh, for Nikki Haley that I want to flag, and I was, I gotta say, I was a little bit surprised when I started hearing this in the focus groups when I was asking about Haley, which is that plenty of people in the focus groups over the last few months had real qualms about whether or not the country is ready for a woman as president. Let's listen. I'm imagining her like meeting with Putin or the, you know, the Chinese leader, et cetera. Um, I just, I don't think she has a chance at winning. And I'm just going to say it. Like, I think that not enough people will vote for her. I think some women will be against her because she's Republican. And I also know some men, like they're not going to vote for a woman as president, whether it's right or wrong. I feel like voting for her is a vote down the drain. I don't want to sound, you know, bad or anything, but I just think 
I, I prefer male presidents and I think they <laughs> are just stronger talking and speaking and in a lot of different areas. So um, I don't know. I would just prefer a male candidate. I don't dislike Nikki Haley. I don't, you know, have anything bad to say about her. I would just prefer DeSantis or Trump. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess it's just a personal thing. Um, I voted for females for Senate um, and Congress before, females. but as a president, I would just like to see a male. Uh, it's not that I don't like her. I'm 100% opposed to a female president, which is probably not going to be a very popular thing to say, but I was in the military and so many other world leaders will not respect us with a female leader and won't listen to anything that we do or say. And we open ourselves up to way more attacks. It, the world is just not ready for that. What about um, Angela Merkel or Margaret Thatcher? Asking for a friend. Just asking for a friend. Don't worry about it. But anyways, uh, I, I do wish you guys could see Tim Miller and Sarah Longwell's expressions during this whole thing. By the way, the laughter was not me. That was Tim Miller. Um, I, I think the most telling part of this, too, was so after this, Sarah Longwell then says that so a few of these people would bring up how they don't think they want a woman president. They prefer a male. They don't think the country's ready for a woman president. And then other people that were not saying anything would start nodding. And that's interesting to me, too. So it sounds like a lot of her two-time Trump supporter focus group either didn't think the country was was ready for a woman, didn't want a woman, preferred a male. And I personally think that this is probably what Trump did to the Republican Party. Like, I'm sure a lot of people have thought this for a while, but I think he's just made people just feel very confident in just expressing their opinions. And, like, look, some of the people in this are just like, well, maybe maybe world leaders won't respect a woman or... Maybe maybe some voters won't vote for Nikki Haley because she's a Republican and a lot of, you know, suburban women won't want that. Like those takes are more nuanced. But then you hear that one guy who's just like, oh, well, I would never vote for a woman. I prefer a male president. The one gal's like, I was in the military, which I guess qualifies her to know that a woman couldn't be president. And I just wanted to scream into the void when I watched this to just go like Margaret Thatcher, like her or not, pretty strong female leader of the United Kingdom very Reagan-esque, very memorable, whether you like her or not again. Angela Merkel obviously has done pretty okay for herself, almost like pretty much the leader of EU politics, of European politics for quite some time. Yeah, Putin didn't respect her, but Putin also didn't respect Obama because Obama was African-American. So there's a lot of reasons why world leaders aren't going to respect you. But I just found it interesting that, you know, I've thought about Nikki Haley, foreign policy experience, governor of South Carolina, there's a lot of hope for her. But then it is interesting to hear people in these focus groups think that, no, no, a man president needs to happen in the GOP. And I, I'd be curious, because yesterday I did a podcast, you know, talking about how Trump would probably pick a woman vice president just because of how things are going. I wonder if maybe he just doesn't, just because I don't really know if the GOP voter base, especially the Trump voter base, really cares right now. But yeah, I just found this this focus group fairly fascinating and it's just interesting that so many of these people in this group were willing to just kind of come out and say, no, I prefer a, a male president, which I, I actually think maybe it is time for a little shift up there. <laughs> you know, I, I think it'd be okay to have a woman president. Uh, I didn't think Hillary was the right one, but these arguments these people use are just kind of outdated and not true because I just remember Angela Merkel, for example, one of the more recent ones that I really think of, being a pretty effective chancellor of Germany. And I always think of, you know, Jacinda Ardern, former leader of um, New Zealand, for example. Like, I think it's less that the world's not ready for a U.S. president to be a female. 
to me, it sounds like the base isn't ready for it. And I think this is a direct effect of kind of Trump and his policies that, you know, he, he knows he needs women voters, but also he's been pretty sexist and pretty misogynist towards women. And I think that has trickled into the base. And I'm not saying the whole base. I'm not saying all Republicans, but I'm saying that I think that does have side effects that have rippled through that base. So we'll move on. But I just found that focus group interview kind of fascinating. So at the end of the podcast, we are going to talk about kind of the new rights culture war against Taylor Swift. I never thought I would be talking about Taylor Swift on the podcast, but that will be coming up later. But first, I want to go to Slovakia, Central Eastern Europe, depending how you define it. I always call it Central Europe. To me, Eastern Europe is like Russia, Ukraine, I guess you could say Belarus. But anyways, that's not what I'm talking about. But anyways, Slovakia has been on a pretty good path. As of recently, it's obviously struggled with kind of post-Soviet quasi-authoritarianism, strongmen, corruption, all the stuff that you pretty much see throughout former Soviet countries. But the Slovakian government actually not perfect. There's still a lot of corruption, of course. I have to caveat that with these days because if I just say they've done good things, people are going to go, but Alex, but... But anyways, the Slovakian government has actually been quite pro-Ukraine. It's handed over a good amount of weapons... This also includes Soviet-made S-300 air defense systems and also 13 MiG fighter jets. For a pretty small country, I think they've understood the gravity of the situation. So, unfortunately, it looks like Slovakia could be going down the road of joining kind of the illiberal world order. And when I say illiberal world order, I'm not even going to include China in it because China's its own thing. I'm talking about countries with a liberal democracies or growing a liberal democracies. So we're talking about India. We're talking about Hungary, potentially Serbia, if things keep going that way. We're talking about Turkey, Russia. It's a hard one. Um, even in a sense, we could be talking about Brazil because I would argue Lula, left wing, not exactly good either, even though he's better than Bolsonaro. But anyways, I really think Slovakia is kind of going down that Hungary Serbia, Poland a little bit road. And so a little background before we get into my thoughts. There's a guy, Robert Fico. Fico. Uh, he was twice the prime minister already of Slovakia. But he was ousted from power in 2018 because, well, a lot of bad things. This was after the murder of a journalist that was investigating high-level corruption. Mass protests eventually kicked him out. But this guy... <laughs> This guy basically was charged then, I think like last year, they found out that he was charged with leading a criminal organization that actually controlled the police inside of Slovakia. Also, a lot of his allies and senior intelligence officers, cabinet members, and a former police chief had been convicted or indicted of corruption linked to this. So, from my understanding, and I'm not a Slovakian expert here, the 2018 murder of a journalist investigating corruption... There's probably a chance that it was linked back in one way or another to at least allies of the former Prime Minister Fico or the criminal organizations he was associated with. From my understanding, that's why the public was so pissed off and eventually led to mass protests, blah, blah, blah. So anyways, getting back to what's happened, it looks like he could be leading Slovakia again for, I guess, his third time as Prime Minister. 
the Economist writes here in quotes, Mr. FICO's SMER party, we're going to call it SMER. I've only seen it written, but the SMER party took 23% of the votes coming first in the election on September 30th. This puts him in a strong position to form the next government in a coalition with a party that once split from his own, plus another extreme right-wing party whose leaders have long been one of Russia's staunchest supporters. And it is not lost on me what that could mean, right? Uh, For example, earlier I talked about how the government gave S-300 air defense systems and MiG fighter jets to Ukraine. Well, apparently Mr. FICO has pledged to stop sending arms to Ukraine. Not surprising, right? Not at all surprising. Uh, Now, The Economist, and I was also reading another article in Foreign Policy, both articles kind of alluded to the same point that, well, maybe since he's won the election, he will understand the political moment and he won't want to totally divide the country and alienate alienate Slovakia from the EU and NATO, so maybe he won't go totally pro-Russia. Basically, from what I've heard, there's a guy, Miroslav Lajkak, and he was actually the foreign, the former foreign minister for Mr. FICO in Slovakia. Now he's an EU official, and people are saying, watch who Mr. FICO appoints to key positions, key cabinet positions, because if he puts people like Miroslav Lajkak, then maybe this will signal that he doesn't want to go too far from the European mainstream. But there's also people that have their doubts. And I also, just generally speaking, have my doubts about why he's even running. And apparently close associates to Mr. FICO say that he is basically trying to return to power so that he won't be prosecuted. There's a guy, and I might butcher this name, so don't hate me, Grigory Mezineskov, who is head of the Institute for Public Affairs, which is a think tank in Bratislava. He says in quotes, he expects a government led by Mr. FICO to create an as comfortable conditions as possible for Smur party associates who have been indicted or are being investigated for corruption. And that sounds to me more like the reality. He's not running because he wants to do well for Slovakia. He's running because he wants to save his ass and save his allies' asses. And to me, I think, I mean, we're seeing this trend around the world, but it's that worrying trend that a lot of people, a lot of former leaders as well, are running for higher office basically to avoid jail time. And this is not a good trend for society. It's not how you make society better for individuals, make equality better, make society more robust, whatever you want to say. This is just a self-preservation technique, which is awful. And I mean, without going too much uh, down a rabbit hole and ranting hole, as we can call it, um, to me, this also, I, I guess in the past, we've had norms, but no legal procedures to deal with this process. But I think our norms just always assume that someone like, like thinking about Donald Trump or like a Viktor Orban or now this Mr. FICO, like our norms assume that they wouldn't violate the norms, but there were never actually legal standards in place for someone who does. So for example, people like Donald Trump are finding that, hey, you actually could run for president from jail. And if you somehow won, you could pardon yourself. Like we've never actually had to have these hypothetical experiments play out in the real world because we've never had to. But I think it just shows the erosion of trust in politics, the erosion of our institutions, and it's happening everywhere. You know, this is nothing specific to any given country as we're seeing throughout Europe, the United States, other parts of the world as well. But Either way, I think this is just, it sets a horrible standard. If you have a president who just wants to basically pardon and protect all of his allies that 
seem to have pretty pretty plausible charges being pushed against them. So, and then also there's just back to the Ukraine thing is that a FICO led government in Slovakia, whether or not it goes full right, like pro Russian nationalist or not, he's a friend of Viktor Orban. And we could probably see a kind of European Union, NATO bad boys club where it is kind of like the Serbias and the Hungries and now the Slovakias. And the problem is, is if you have this growing mass of countries that are at least not anti-Russia, but they're kind of pedal in pro-Russian rhetoric, it could really, it could really be an obstruction to unified help against Putin's genocidal invasion of a sovereign country, in my opinion. So not, not good on that front either. I also worry, the last thing I'll say about FICO here, is that I'm, I'm worried that he's going to help fuel more conspiracies, divide society, and put out pro-Russian nationalism that's being thrown at the wall from Russian propaganda networks throughout the world inside of Moscow, etc. And there's an interesting person, again, I'm going to try not to butcher the name, Dominika Hajdu of Globsec. And this is a Basically, it's a nonprofit think tank, whatever you want to call it, that kind of involves in basically free speech and pro-democracy, free free exchange of ideas, a kind of a Central European forum. Anyways, basically, Hodgdu says here in quotes, modern Slovak identity stems from 19th century pan-Slavic ideas that envisioned Russia as a protector. She then says many Slovaks believe in quotes, Russia is this big actor and that we are poor, small Slovaks and we have to do what they say because they're so big and we cannot do anything. And I think this is an interesting idea that you kind of see in other Eastern European countries as well. But it's one that I think if you had the right leader kind of play to this, it could just basically, especially if it's a pro-Russian leader who maybe sympathizes with Putin or has economic or monetary interests with Putin, you could kind of convince your population that it's not worth standing up to the big guy. We're just a small country. We should just let them have power. And I worry this is Putin's bigger idea. This is kind of the bigger thing Putin wants. But basically, research by Globesec, it does also reveal distrust in institutions, susceptibility to conspiracy theories, and actually a lot of anti-Americanism that I think was rooted probably from the Cold War. That would be my best guess on that. But here's just some numbers. Globesec tells us, though 40% of Slovaks agree that Russia is primarily responsible for the war in Ukraine, 51% believe that either the West provoked Russia or that Ukraine did so because it oppressed Russian speakers. It also says 66% agreed in quotes, the U.S. is dragging Slovakia into a war with Russia because it is, because it is profiting from it. It also says only 48% agreed that liberal democracy based on equality, human rights, and the rule of law was good for the country. So according to this study, and I'm sure there's others that might be different, but less than 50% of the people studied in this believe that democracy is the most important thing. That's the number that's very telling to me, and it is not not at all good news. Um, so I think we have to just now wait and see whether the FICO government, the Smur party, tries to moderate after the election, or if it goes just full hair on fire. And I would I would probably assume it has enough allies in the region like Viktor Orban's Fidesz party that I would imagine it goes probably hair on fire instead of moderating because there's no reason to moderate because there's enough 
other bad actors in the region and in the world that there's a support group for them. All right, so final thing. I, I never thought I would talk about Taylor Swift on the podcast. Um, she's fine. I'm not a big Swifty. She has a few songs I like. She's grown on me a little bit. Blah, blah, blah. But, this, of course, this is a political podcast, so I'm not going to talk about her music. <laughs> I'm not going to do an analysis of her pre- and post-Taylor's versions or any of that stuff. Good God, I know more than I should. But anyways, I want to talk about how the culture war, the right-wing-led culture war, that by the way, is coming for Taylor Swift, especially since she's been seen at Chiefs game with Travis Kelsey. Cool guy, by the way. But... First, let's get into probably why everyone's attacking her. First off, Travis Kelsey, one of the best, probably the best tight end in the NFL right now. Kansas City Chief, Super Bowl champion. Seems like a cool guy. He was on SNL, pretty good for a football player. Not dissing football players, but, you know, not always the best actors. But he did pretty well on it. But now the thing is, he's been in a COVID vaccine commercial on TV. He was encouraging fans, partnering with Pfizer, to get his COVID-19 shot. Then, (laughs) a few months earlier, he did a Bud Light commercial. And he's dating Taylor Swift. So, (laughs) oh, and also he once took a knee during the Star Spangled Banner in 2017. So right now he is playing piss off the far right bingo. And he's doing pretty well to piss them off, right? You have Pfizer partnership knelt during the national anthem and Bud Light commercial. Good God. And this probably pissed some people off because I think on paper, or at least on surface level, he seems like a a guy that could maybe be just a, you know, a Midwest kind of conservative football player or something. But he doesn't seem to be that. So now on top of that, earlier this week, (laughs) Governor Gavin Newsom, who I've talked about a lot lately, actually, called uh, basically Taylor Swift's influence on the 2024 presidential election, or it could be, profoundly powerful. And this is because last week, basically Swift encouraged her Instagram followers to register to vote. And since that, Vote.org reported more than 35,000 registrations, which was a 23% jump from last year. So yeah, she's becoming a big force in getting people out to vote. And... That's also probably not going to make people too happy. The thing here is that prior to this, I don't think she was really known as being too politically active. Um, I'm assuming she did that because there's a lot of people on both sides of the aisle that like her, right? Like her music. And I think prior to 2018, she's just been really quiet. But then over actually the last like four years, she has become more outspoken. And I think it's pretty clear that she's a Democrat. She spoke out against the Senate Republican candidate, Marsha Blackburn, and endorsed two Democrats in Tennessee in 2018. And then she went full um, endorsing Biden for president in 2020 and supporting LGBTQ plus rights through her music. And I mean, it kind of makes sense. The country's got a little bit crazier. I think back in the early to mid 2010s, you could kind of be quiet about your politics. But I think for a lot of people, it's just become harder to do so. So she's one of those people that did so. And basically, so we have her kind of becoming a liberal icon, getting people out to vote, which I think is great. I think everyone should vote. You should never be mad for getting more people to vote, unless you're Matt Walsh, by the way, Daily Wire guy, the one who, you know, spends most of his day attacking trans people. 
he said that he doesn't think everyone should be able to vote, especially stupid people. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but there are people that don't want everyone to vote, but I'm for people voting, I guess. Uh, it's one of the things I, I like about our country. But anyways, you kind of have, a, I guess, a liberal power couple that is triggering the right on about every way possible. And it's, again, that kind of mix of the incel Nick Fuentes types, the Manosphere types, the Andrew Tate types, you know, all the all the likely suspects that attack women, anti-liberal, it's all about masculinity. They're all really coming for her. But there's been a lot of just weird attacks coming from the right. Like, here's one. There's a guy, Roger Kimball. Well, actually, let's start with Sean Davis. Sean Davis um, puts out a picture um, linking a Federalist article on Twitter, and it says, Taylor Swift's popularity is a sign of societal decline. Then he says, Taylor Swift is dumb and her music sucks. I mean, I don't know if either one of those are true. She seems quite intelligent to me and her music's super popular. I mean, her era's tour, is that what it was called? I don't even know. But her big tour that just wrapped up, just looking at the videos I saw of it, I think a lot of people (laughs) like her and do not think her music sucks. So sorry, Mr. Davis. I don't think that's true. But now the worst one was when there's this guy, Roger Kimball. He's a right-wing guy. Used to be, used to have some interesting stuff, actually. But he then retweets or re-Xs, whatever it's called now, Sean Davis's thing. And then he, he says, also, she is homely. Now, by the way, this Roger Kimball guy kind of looks, I mean, I don't, okay, I'm going to try to be nice. I was going to say something worse. But the Roger Kimball guy does not look like someone who should be criticizing her for her looks. I'll just say that. Um kind of has a thumb type of vibe going. So I'll just stop with that. But it's just interesting he is going to those type of attacks. But that's pretty much been what the majority of the attacks have been. Like there's another guy, Nick Adams, who I don't even know who he is, but Nick Adams on X, and then in parentheses, his Twitter name is Alpha Male. He says Taylor Swift is mid. So now you have all these alpha males, as they call themselves, attacking a country pop star who's just like getting people to vote. Would an alpha male really spend their time on X tweeting about how Taylor Swift is mid? Just ask yourself that. This is all just so fascinating to me, though, because it's like this weird culture war and all these like it's it's kind of infused with the Manosphere vibe as well. (laughs) Uh, It's just exhausting. And I actually think it could backfire uh, because... She's still popular, actually, with a lot of younger conservatives as well. Um, what's her name? Uh, Tony Loren, right? Uh, she actually put out, a, I think, a little more uh, interesting take on it on her podcast. I mean, she still attacks the left, but also understands Taylor Swift is big. Tony Lo- Tommy Loren here says in quotes, Her lefty, liberal, brain-dead political views aside, I'm a fan of Taylor Swift, and I've been since way before she went full liberal. She's also single-handedly done more for the U.S. economy than any Democratic president, maybe ever. Now, I don't know about the maybe ever part, but it is true her era's tour really did well for a lot of local communities. Like, I'm okay with Tommy Loren's take. I don't agree with all of it, but it's a lot better than a bunch of, like, men who call themselves alpha males just attacking her because she's a liberal. But, like, this online Twitter culture, especially since Musk, you know, took back over Twitter— it's just become so toxic and kind of insane to me. And there's just it's it's just a wormhole of toxic toxic dudes tweeting about this type of stuff. And I do think this will backfire though, back to that, because 
she represents the young vote. There's an, Newsweek has a good article on this, and it writes here, a study unveiled last year by Tufts University Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement found that the turnout of voters aged 18 to 29 in the 2020 midterms elections was the second highest it's been in almost three decades. Among this group of voters, it was found that they preferred Democrats over Republicans by a 28-point margin. So that was, a, that was a lot of words there. So I would summarize it as a lot of younger voters like Taylor Swift keep attacking her. They already lean Democrat. They'll probably go further Democrat. And the Republicans have a declining base aging base, I guess you could say. So do you really want to piss off younger voters? That would be how I would paraphrase that. And the article continues talking about how there could be a backlash or backfiring against efforts to dismiss the star as somebody not worthy of being listened to. And I think that is very true. I, like I said, I don't even agree with all of Taylor Swift's views. I, like I said, I'm not like a huge Swifty or anything, but just going through these attacks on her are just kind of insane. And it just shows me that, again, when you have no policy, when you you know the culture is changing around you and you have no response to it, you have guys, academics, journalists with the Federalist Society, liter- or not the Federalist Society, the Federalist, not writing articles about how to make the economy better or help Ukraine or alternatives to Ukraine. They're just attacking Taylor Swift on Twitter. Seems kind of small to me. Anyways, that'll do it for today. Let me know your thoughts. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. Take care and adios.